0: This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics Podcast for Thursday, November 30th. Boeing is awarded a multi billion dollar sole source contract despite public campaigns to launch an open competition. The Minister of National Defense on why the government chose this path to replace Canada's surveillance planes. And India is launching a high-level inquiry into the stunning allegations released yesterday in a U.S. indictment. An alleged plot connected to India's government to carry out assassinations in North America. We'll dig into those revelations and what they mean for Canada's foreign policy. Plus, controversy at committee when a Conservative MP asks the Minister of Heritage to respond to questions in English instead of French. The Power Panel, coming up on that. We begin here in Ottawa. The Canadian government is acquiring new maritime patrol aircraft for the military, but the multi-billion dollar project is the product of a sole source contract to Boeing, leaving Bombardier out in the cold. The plane is known as the P-8A Poseidon maritime patrol aircraft, and the government says it excels at anti-submarine as well as intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance capabilities. The project is estimated to cost 10.4 billion dollars. Now, the first plane is expected to be delivered in 2026, with an average of one plane delivered per month. That means Canada's Air Force could receive all of the planes, up to 16, by the fall of 2027. Now, the government anticipates the fleet will be fully operational by 2033. Bill Blair is the Minister of National Defense. He joins me now. Minister, welcome back to the show.
1: Thank you very much, David.
0: Why was this patrol aircraft the right one for the Canadian Air Force rather than other options out there?
1: Well, first of all, there were no other real options. Um, the Canadian Armed Forces defined for us, the, the, particularly the Air Force, defined for us what the capabilities were, their requirements of a multi-mission aircraft. And we looked very carefully at, at, at how we could deliver those requirements. There was only one aircraft, and that made it the right choice, and that's the, the Boeing Poseidon 8, 8 Alpha. Um, it, it, it met all of the requirements. And, and the, the, the other options were the development of a plane that did not yet exist. And, and so we, the, the Canadian Armed Forces was very clear that they felt a, 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 an urgency because of, of uh, to meet those requirements. And, and they, 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 we believed it was important to be able to move forward on, on matching those requirements. As I said, the alternative of a development option created a great deal of uncertainty as to cost, uh, the 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 capability, the delivery of capability, and and the, even the schedule of delivery, and so uh, this this I think was a very good day for the, for the Royal Canadian Air Force. That um, they asked very clearly, they said this is what they needed. And I think today we were able to deliver it for you.
0: Well, th- this development option would have been a Canadian development option, right? Bombardier would have been the proponent behind this. Uh, they, they've issued a statement and, saying, and,
1: and 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 with great respect, that that would not that's not to be determined. There there were actually 14 different uh, right. aeronautics companies that had expressed an interest in a development option, but only one actually had a plane that met all of the requirements right now. And 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 so we because of frankly, I believe it was very much in the national interest that, that the only option that, that was available that met all of the requirements of, of the Air Force was the Poseidon, and, and, and so that, that choice was, for me, rather obvious. So
0: this wouldn't have been a, a competition between Boeing and Bombardier had it gone to competition. It would have been much wider than
1: that. Well of, well, of, well, of course, and, and, and there, there was, as I said, there, there was one plane that met all of the requirements versus a number of other aeronautics companies that expressed an interest in developing an option, Um, And, and frankly, those those are all good companies, and certainly Bombardier is is, is an excellent um, aeronautics company, but they they did not have a plane uh, that met these requirements at this time. There was only one option that did, and that's the one we've decided to purchase.
0: Okay, well, Bombardier says it's disappointed with the decision to award this contract the way you have as a sole source contract. Uh, The premiers of Ontario and Quebec had called on the government uh, to launch an open competition. I know some labor unions here in Canada were pushing for the same thing. I mean, what's your argument to them, that you should have considered the economic benefits of perhaps a broader competition?
1: I would want to assure the premiers of Quebec and Ontario and those unions that we most certainly did consider the economic benefits. And in fact, um, our government has worked very closely with the manufacturer of the Poseidon, which is Boeing. Um, and they have undertaken to provide significant uh, economic investments in, in Canada that, that will result in, in the sustainment of over 3,000 jobs in Canada um, for employees and, and also w- which should add about $358 million, um, $358 million each year to, the, to, to our uh, gross domestic product. And so there are very significant, both jobs and economic benefits that will accrue to Canada as a result of this acquisition. Um, that was a very important part of, of, of this investment. You know, we're buying the planes and there are already a number of very important Canadian companies that will benefit from the extension of, 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 of this aircraft and, and its use in Canada. But as well, we've got ad- additional significant investments to make in infrastructure and in maintenance mm-hmm. and other other systems of supply. And, and Canadian ben- Canadian companies will benefit quite significantly from those investments.
0: But, but in terms of- In terms of the economic benefits of doing it as an open competition where potentially a Canadian company like Bombardier could have built it, you're essentially saying here, for the interest of operational readiness and function for the Canadian Air Force, you had to choose this plane because of its readiness capacity rather than the economic uh, potential of an open competition.
1: Well, well I, I don't want to dismiss the importance of the economic sure. benefits that will accrue from, from this acquisition but at the same time as, as the Minister of National Defence I listened very carefully to the Royal Canadian Air Force they were very clear on, on the capability requirements that they required. They also just described a, a situation of some urgency. They were very concerned about not being able to meet these requirements in a timely way. We've been, we've been using the CP140 the Aurora, for, for, for nearly 40 years. By the time it reaches the end of its life cycle, it'll, it'll have been in service for nearly 50 years. And so it was really important to the, to the Air Force that we move forward in an effort to, to, to meet the requirements that they had described. And the only option that was available to us was the Poseidon P-8.
0: Okay, So you've taken these steps to, to meet the requirements that the Air Force uh, has described there is a video released by the head of the Navy outlining uh, the requirements that they have. A very stark warning in this video released on the Navy's YouTube page. I just want to pay, play a quick clip here.
1: Sure. Colleagues and shipmates, the RCN faces some very serious challenges right now that could mean we fail to meet
0: our force posture and readiness commitments in 2024 and beyond. The RCN is in a critical state, with many occupations experiencing shortages at 20% and higher. There's a simple reason for this. Despite their very best efforts, CFRG has not delivered the required intake for the RCN for over 10 years. So, so, Minister, that's a pretty stark warning from the head of the Navy that recruitment hasn't been met for 10 years. They essentially don't have enough sailors, don't have enough ships. They, they don't have enough sailors to sail and don't have enough ships to train. What are you going to do to meet the operational requirements of the Navy, the way you have the Air Force today?
1: Yeah, first of all, I, I, I very much respect Admiral Topshi's concern that he's expressed here. But I would also point out, as Admiral Topshi points out himself later on in that self-same video, that the Canadian government, our Canadian government, has made very significant new investments in Arctic offshore patrol ships. We've invested in, in the construction of new surface combat ships um, for, for the Navy. But, and, and we are making sure we have the resources necessary to keep the Halifax uh, frigates um, st- still afloat and still in service for the, for the time being. The, you know, just last last week, in, in direct response to a concern that, that uh, Admiral Topshi had raised, we we just announced 188 million dollars into a new training center in, in, in for Halifax, uh, Force Base for for the Navy. Um, The the Admiral identifies, I think, one of the great challenges for the Canadian Armed Forces. We have to do a better job of recruiting the very best and uh, brightest of Canadians into our armed forces. A big part of that is making sure that we provide them with the supports that, that they require, but also to make sure that we've got the ships, the planes, the munitions and the tanks. That will enable them to do the important job. I, I believe the investment we announced today is going to be real. It's really good news for the future of the Royal Canadian Air Force. Delivering on those Arctic offshore patrol ships and the new surface combatant ships is also going to be really good news. But as the Admiral quite rightfully points out, and as I've had many discussions with the Chief of Defence, we've got a huge job to do to make sure that we go out and, and let Canadians know of the opportunity that exists to, to, to serve in the Canadian Armed Forces and that we will make the investments to make sure that their service can be effective and safe.
0: But, you, you know, Minister, procuring the, the new ships is important, but it's it's, it's only uh, one part of the issue, right? I, I mean, the Navy's recruitment targets uh, over the last 10 years, they, they've not been hit. And, and the commander said the Navy is only able to operate one, one of its six Harry DeWolf-class offshore patrol vessels because they have a, a shortage of technicians. You stack on top of that, the Halifax-class ships being extended for decades beyond their normal life. It, it, it seems like, with all of the capacity challenges we've talked about in the armed forces uh, broadly, they're very acute in the Navy if only one in six of the ships can, can be deployed.
1: Well, and, and so we're, we are making, all, I, was, I was down at the Irving shipyard in Halifax a couple of weeks ago, and, and we met with them and talked about, first of all, the maintenance of the Halifax-class ships so that we can keep them on, on, on the water and keep them in service. And at the same time, I think I share the, the, the General's sense of urgency about getting those new ships built so that we can, we can significantly improve their capacity. But I also have listened very carefully to the Canadian Armed Forces. They've been facing very significant challenges over many years in recruiting the people they need in to do the job. And so that that is priority one. The people, the men and women of the Canadian Armed Forces, is priority one. Our job is to make sure that they have a work environment which is supportive, safe, and inclusive, and at the same time, the job is to make sure that they also have the tools. You know, we, we ask much of them. And they put their lives on the line when they, when they go out in service of our country. Um, our job is to make sure that we have the very best of them, that have the best training and the best supports, the best tools to use to do that job. They, it, it, and, and, I, and I hope today that, that many of them will find some encouragement of the investment we made today in the new P-8 because we listened very carefully. Mm-hmm. It, the Air Force told us what they needed. And we deliver it for them today.
0: So, Minister, just as a final point, on on the big priority policies and programs for this government, for example, the climate agenda, there's very clear targets and very clear timelines laid out in public, and then you move policy after policy to try to hit them. Same thing with $10 a day childcare. When do we see a very clear timeline for recruitment gaps being filled and equipment gaps being filled Uh, for the Canadian Armed Forces.
1: Yeah, a couple of things, David, on that. In 2017, we came forward with a strong, secure, and engaged uh, defense policy. Being updated. It it involved very significant new investments. And some of the money that we're spending today on the new P8 is money that was dedicated at that time in 2017 because we recognized that we were going to have to make changes um, in that platform. They, They identified way back in 2017, that the, 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 the Aurora 140 was not going to be able to be kept in service beyond 2030. And so we've been acting on that and we're delivering on that. And at the same time, uh, we've already indicated in our, in our last budget that we'll be bringing forward a new defence policy update because there are additional significant new investments that have to be made. But but I think the great challenge of making sure that we get the people in the door, right now the, the, the Canadian Armed Forces is actually budgeted for almost 16,000 more people than they currently have. And so that's, that's my number one job, is working with them to help them solve their recruitment challenge. And they also face challenges in retaining the best and the brightest. There are some extraordinary men and women in the Canadian Armed Forces. We've got to make sure that we support them as they do that important job for us so that they can, can stay and, and, and continue to support their families and have a rewarding can, a career in the Canadian Armed Forces. That is the number one challenge for, for the Armed Forces. It, it's, it's my greatest responsibility, and I think it's the Admiral and the, and the General's responsibility as well.
0: Minister of National Defense, Bill Blair, thanks for your time today.
1: Thanks very much, David.
0: Well, the other big international story we're following, India is launching a high-level inquiry into the stunning allegations raised yesterday in a U.S. indictment. American prosecutors allege an unnamed Indi- Indian government official was linked to multiple assassination plots, which includes the June assassination of Canadian Sikh separatist leader Hardeep Singh Nijjar.
2: As regards the case against an individual that has been filed in a U.S. court, Uh, allegedly linking him to an Indian official. This is a matter of concern. We have said, and uh, let me reiterate, that this is also
0: contrary to government policy. U.S. National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby also addressed the allegations today at the White House. India
3: remains a strategic partner, um, and we're going to continue to work to improve and uh, strengthen uh, that strategic partnership with India at
2: the same time. We take this very seriously. And we're glad to see
1: that the Indians are too by announcing their own efforts
3: to investigate this.
0: Okay, here to discuss these revelations is Roland Paris. He's the director of the University of Ottawa's Graduate School of Public and International Affairs. And Professor Paris previously served as a foreign policy advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Roland Paris, good to see you again. You too. I I want to get to India's response and John Kirby's comments in in just a second, but
2: what's your initial reaction to what was spelled out? And It's a pretty stunning indictment. It is stunning, and and for your viewers who don't usually read indictments, I actually <laughs> encourage you just to download it's only fifteen it because, pages. It's worth no, it. No, yeah. it is extraordinary. The level of detail. It's hard to believe. And if you know the pro- if the pros- if the evidence uh, that the prosecutors say they have uh, holds up in court, it really is damning. It directly links the Indian government, or at least an Indian government agent, and it establishes this connection between. The The Canadian murder and the disrupted plot in the United States, it is stunning. So yeah yeah I mean I mean it's it,
0: it's uh, it's the Indian agent who reached out to a, a, an alleged drug dealer to try to arrange an assassination reportedly and he ended up reaching out to someone who's a confidential source for law enforcement who hooked him up with a drug enforcement agent who acted as an undercover hitman I mean they don't make this stuff up. Yeah, it it, it read like a, a movie script. But you, you know, so India you heard there it's a matter of concern is yeah. what they say. They they've launched an inquiry into these allegations a movie for the USA they welcome. Does the government of India have a real interest in getting to the truth here?
2: Well, they haven't so far. They've been dodging and denying the whole time. It's taken the U.S. indictment to get them to the point of even saying that there's going to be an investigation. But I think that they understand that this is the beginning of a judicial process and more of this information is going to be coming out. And they can probably expect, I mean, there is an active criminal investigation taking place in British Columbia, that there might be a similar uh, uh, prosecution in Canada, too. So they are going to have to investigate, they're going to have to explain, and they're going to have to hold some people accountable. Because if this evidence is true, there's only two options. Either there was a criminal plot by the government of India to assassinate multiple people in North America who are citizens of those countries, Canada the United States, or they have a rogue agent. Either way, there needs to be an explanation, there needs to be accountability.
0: Yeah, and either one, I mean, one is obviously worse, but neither of those explanations is, pretty go- is good. But what's interesting to note, Roland, is they're taking the U.S. way more seriously than they took Canada, India, that is. When, when Justin Trudeau uh, made his allegations in the House of Commons that day, now I know there's an indictment with laid out detail and a suggestion that they have phone and video evidence and all kinds of, of data to back this up, but do you think the U.S. entering into this will change India's posture towards Canada, potentially, because of what was laid out here?
2: Well, it certainly helps Canada. You know, it's much easier for India both to deny Canada's allegations and to take retaliatory measures against Canada as they have. But with the United States, it's too important a relationship for them to to risk. At the same time, you know, if the extension of the clip, you, you had the Indian spokesperson there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he went on and, sa- and continued to make the distinction between Canada and the United States, continued to take shots at Canada. It is a sign that in this new world, Canada is much more vulnerable than we used to be to retaliation, I used to say, by emboldened authoritarian regimes, now by even India, a democratic country. And so it definitely helps for, for Canada to have the United States out front on this mm-hmm. and to be taking the attention away from Canada.
0: It's interesting the challenge India poses, right? Because it is a democracy, but there have been authoritarian tendencies recently under the Modi regime and it's criticized for uh, significant human rights abuses and now we have alleged assassination plots in the U.S. and in Canada all while the West is relying on India to be a counterweight against China. How do you approach the Indo-Pacific strategy when that's the guy
2: you're relying on to help you? Yeah, this is just like one example of how complicated uh, foreign policy and international affairs have become. But you're right, you know, by any measure, and there are a whole bunch of uh, organizations out there that measure democracy, levels of democracy, levels of human rights, uh, measures of press freedom, and India's been tracking down on all of those things. But at the same time, there is a strategic interest that you heard John Kirby express about having India as a strategic partner in the region in relation to China. So you heard John Kirby's remarks that was trying to thread a needle. And to some extent, it seems clear now that more evidence is coming out that both the United States and Canada have been trying to give India an an off-ramp on this. They don't want this to completely dominate the relationship. They spoke to India privately. They wanted this investigation to begin with. Uh, even Melanie Jolie last month gave a speech and said, listen, this is something we have to deal with as Canadian sovereignty, but we also know this is a much longer and older relationship with India. Well, we even saw that with the Prime Minister's
0: reaction to this yesterday, because when, when, when he did what he did in Parliament that day, People's jaws dropped. Yeah. And then there's a lot of rush to punditry that, oh, he's trying to juice his polls and all these sorts of things. He could have come out and kind of gloated yesterday with the big I told you so, but instead it was, you know, we, we take it very seriously. We look forward to the investigation. We want India to cooperate with the investigation. That suggests that off ramp strategy that you're I think so. About. And
2: I think that that's been happening since day one. Um, <clears throat> because we know that senior, not just senior Canadian officials, uh, security officials, we knew that before, what we found out yesterday was that the two most senior officials, intelligence officials in the United States, had also been traveling right. to India in the last few months. And you just know that what they're trying to do is impress upon the in- Indian government how seriously the United States and Canada take this and to get the Indian government to take some responsibility so that they can, they can manage this. But one thing is clear here. And this is not a partisan remark. The Prime Minister has been vindicated through these allegations. He said there were credible allegations. Well, there they are in black and white, and they look more than credible today.
0: Yes, and and, uh, the thing that is is striking also from the indictment, which again, if you can find it, you can read it, (laughs) um, the man Gupta, who is the alleged drug trafficker who was uh, accused of trying to hire murder for hire, promised more jobs in the future, right? So this is not a one-off in in British Columbia and a potential one-off in New York. There was, it seemed like, a persistent campaign at least being offered to these people. So given that... How do you approach India? This off-ramp strategy yeah. seems very clear. How do you navigate them on getting your diplomats back in, maintaining visas, you know, expanding trade? Because, you know, we've got two million people in Canada who trace their lineage back there. There's business ties, cultural ties. How do you approach this as a government with all of this?
2: Well, you know, it's one thing for us to talk about whether democracy has been sliding in India, but that's what's happening inside India. When India reaches out and allegedly con- conducts an assassination campaign, that's that's a really big deal. Mm. And I think at this point it's up to the Indians. They can either take this seriously and conduct an investigation or they do risk having this issue blow up the relationships. Uh, And so how do you deal with this? You deal with this by putting pressure on India, telling them this isn't going to go away. Now, India really cares about the relationship with the United States in particular. So it wants to find a way to manage this. So with the American pressure now on India, hopefully there'll be some results. Roland Paris, always
0: appreciate it. That's Roland Paris, director of the University of Ottawa's Graduate School of Public and International Affairs. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Canada will spend billions of dollars on a sole-sourced contract to buy military planes from Boeing.
1: When we defined those operational requirements, it's what the Air Force said they needed from us. We looked, and the only currently available aircraft that delivered on those capabilities was the Poseidon 8 Alpha. So it wasn't a choice between this airplane and another, because there is no other.
0: Okay, did the government make the right choice for Canada? We're going to talk about that with the power panel. Emily Nicola is a columnist for Le Devoir. Sapria Devetti is the Director of Policy at McGill's Centre for Media, Technology and Democracy. Andrew Thompson is a former Saskatchewan NDP cabinet minister, now Chief of Government Relations at the University of Toronto. And here with me in the studio, Fred Delory, former Conservative National Campaign Manager, now with North Star Public Affairs. All right, gang, uh, Emily, this has uh, angered some people in Quebec. The decision to go with Boeing, Bombardier, won. one in on this francois legault wanted this to be a competition even doug ford wanted it to be a competition what what's the political fallout potentially for the government in going with what they say was ready to fly rather than a, a local option potentially
3: yeah so there's the the facts and we've just had a, a short outline of that but essentially uh, if the military decided that Uh, you know, listed a uh, a list of things they were looking for in in an airplane and there's only one model that that fits that. Uh, It it looks like they were trying to tie the hands of the people at the political level so that they really just have one choice to go to. Now, that being said, here in Quebec, obviously Bombardier is, is a big deal. There's a lot of jobs that are attached to it, but more generally speaking, there is this narrative politically, uh, that people are always ready to tap into that, you know, uh, people are more likely to send the big contracts and the big jobs down to either Southern Ontario or even the United States. Um, but that there's been since the seventies, a move, uh, f- economically from Montreal to Toronto. And so that's the narrative that they're tapping into when they're, they're that that story is is put together. The way that people are going to read that story is 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 as part of a new chapter of that longer, you know, narrative about how sometimes businesses in Montreal do not get the same kind of investment that the the people in Toronto since the 1970s in Canada.
0: You know, uh, Andrew, I'm certainly no expert on military procurement. I don't know if anyone in Canada really is, Mm -hmm. but but also uh, on on surveillance planes. But when you hear them lay it out that this is a plane that's ready to go, used by the Five Eyes Allies, used by a lot of NATO countries, and whereas the other options were developmental options and conversion options that weren't necessarily proven... Given the capacity challenges inside the armed forces right now, don't, do you have to do it this way to, to meet the need as quick as you can? You
4: know, I thought the minister made a compelling argument uh, for this particular uh, procurement. Uh, we've had, I mean, Canadians are far too well aware of all of the failures that we have had in the military procurements, from uh, seeking hof- uh, helicopters, leaky subs... Uh, you know, broken icebreakers. We've got uh, flip-flopping on the uh, the fighter jet uh, replacement. I mean, it just seems impossible for the bureaucrats uh, to be able to figure out how to to actually purchase the equipment that the forces need. I think what uh, you know, Bill Blair and and the Liberal government has done here is decided to put the defense forces, the interests of the defense forces, ahead of those of the defense contractors. And I think that makes a lot of sense. They're going to have to do more of that. It would have been good if Canada's industry had developed along the way, so that we could have more Canadian source solutions. But it's pretty hard to argue that you are going to buy a plane that is not even currently planned, let alone prototyped, from a company that doesn't have any ability to actually build it. So this is much more sensible that at this point, this critical juncture that we're at, the forces have to be uh, you know, the priority, and I think the decision is a good one.
0: So, Supriya, you, you know, uh, obviously the government has tendering processes. You want to have a competitive process you know, to create competition, to put price down and get a better product. But with all of the challenges uh, the calf is facing and, and with the, you know, the, the need to move so quickly, do, have, do they need to look at going this sort of a way um, on a lot of things in the future, do you think?
5: I mean, maybe, look, I think as a general principle, sole source deals are, you know, suboptimal, but sometimes when there is a sole good option, I mean, you don't really have a choice, right? And I mean, to be honest, I don't really get the reasoning for Bombardier's complaining here. Um, As Andrew already pointed out, the plane in question that they want to offer us doesn't even exist yet. It's uh, on paper only. So I'm not sure why any government would want to try military equipment um, that isn't fully developed and tested, and then you contextualize that in the current moment. You know, we're living in an increasingly dangerous world. You have both China and Russia that are eyeing our Arctic sovereignty, um, and we need to get serious about how we defend ourselves from emboldened authoritarians. And, you know, every single one of our Five Eyes partners has this aircraft, so I mean, on that basis alone, I'm not really sure why we'd want to be offside from them. Uh, And then, you know, when you consider the fact that Again, there is literally no other plane on offer. I'm not really sure what else the the government was supposed to do. And I take the arguments um, that Emily made, uh, you know, about the the narrative and the sentiment, um, particularly that uh, Quebecers tend to have when it comes to jobs mm-hmm. being uh, perhaps prioritized elsewhere. But I mean, Boeing did say in their own release that there was going to be an aerospace development center in Montreal that would host, you know, R&D focused on uh, decarbonization, electrification, um, and it's also going to create partnerships with Canadian universities. So that to me sounds like a win. And uh, Minister Blair put out an op-ed in in the National Post today. And I mean, I don't have it open and I don't have it on me, but like from memory, um, he did say that it's like 3,000 jobs annually or something. And if you're looking at... What it does to GDP over a ten-year period—it's something like a little over 350 million—and you know, um, he's also singled out like Nova Scotia, Quebec, and Ontario as uh, being one of the beneficiaries um, of this deal. So I, I don't know; it, it just—it seems like it makes sense.
0: So, Fred, you know, Sole Source is, is always controversial, a, a, as Supriya lays out. Did they meet the bar today in justifying this, you know, I think from a politics and, and procurement standpoint, do you think?
6: I think they did, actually, because this is one of those things, as others have said, uh, our Five uh, Eyes allies use these planes. We're interchangeable with them. We can, uh, you know, there's lots of work that could be done. And 14 of our other allies uh, use them as well. So these are planes that are existing now that are in use, um, so it's not creating a brand new plane from scratch. Uh, so I think I think it does, and, and also we're able to get it soon. We'll be able to have the full fleet uh, in a couple of years. Where if we went, you know, if we went the RFP route with this, it would take years before we'd even get there. And we know how these things work, where they keep getting changed and things keep bungling up the process. Right. Where I think the political mistake was um, the indecision of this government, which seems to be an, an overwhelming uh, issue with this government on lots of files. They should have made this decision a long time ago. Yeah.
0: Today was the deadline. Right, right. And to get it
6: done. We all knew they were going to do this or they, they should have done this. Uh, and to get to this point, uh, just all they did was take more heat for no reason.
0: So, so e- Emily, you know, uh, given the arguments in favor of, of following this process, whether they should have done it sooner or not, and, and what Minister Blair said in the interview with me earlier, this wasn't a choice between Boeing and Bombardier. It was a choice between Boeing and an open competition, of which Bombardier would yeah. have been only one competitor uh, uh, company. Does the economic benefits for Montreal and other parts uh, of Canada and the fact that it it was not a lock that Bombardier would have gotten it even if there was a competition, does that in any way push back against that narrative you, you outlined so clearly at the beginning of the chat?
3: Uh, yes, it does. If people are uh, in good faith, <laughs> which uh, they're not always. <laughs> That's a tall order. Twenty twenty
0: three. So, so
3: if uh, if people decide that they're angry with the Ottawa, and with the federal government in general, they've decided that already. That decided they decided that they they are not happy. Uh, then they will use that as an example of why they're not happy. Uh, if they decide to be happy, um, then they're going to move on from this early on. I, I, I do think, though, that being said, that there's also the question to be put to bombarding in terms of, you know, if you, if you saw this coming, uh, why wasn't your prototype more advanced? What could have been done more in terms of R&B, R&D so that uh, what you had to offer at this point in time when we have known for years that like the Canadian military was looking for new planes? Um, what was, why wasn't your model more advanced uh, and, and therefore able to enter the competition in a way that was fairer? Right. Uh, I think is a question that should, could be put back to Bombardier would be very fair.
0: Okay, uh, I want to shift to another topic here. Uh, Some controversy at the Heritage Committee this morning, uh, where Conservative MP Rachel Thomas asked the Heritage Minister, Pascal St. Ange, to speak English in her responses. Here's how that went down and the backlash that followed.
3: Minister, I, I noticed that you answer my questions in French, but other English questions you answer in English if they're from your liberal colleagues. Um, I realize it's completely your choice. for a bilingual country, um, but if at all possible, I would, I'd love to have it. Point Point of order. Order. I thought it was really inappropriate and disrespectful to French people and Quebec people.
1: I am an English Canadian, therefore I am somewhat superior to you. You should speak English to me.
0: Okay, several hours later, Rachel Thomas sent this apology to the committee chair, writing, "Conservatives support official bilingualism, the preservation of the French language in Canada, and the right of Canadians to communicate in the language of their choice. I would ask that you please pass along my apologies to the minister and to the other members of the committee. Um, Emily, I, I'm going to stick with you uh, on this uh, yeah. as our resident uh, Quebec president. Um, a lot of Quebec MPs jumped on this today. At one point, Pablo Rodriguez stood up in question period after Pierre Paul, who spoke French and congratulated him on his bravery in speaking in French, <laughs> given uh, the caucus he is in. Uh, so it's been given the Liberals uh, an opportunity to push back. How do you think this is going to play in Quebec?
3: Oh, It's really uh, interesting to have those two segments, uh, one after the other, because then I have to explain another pre-existing narrative. Okay, (laughs) let's go. uh, Which is uh, that, um, and the clip you played from François Blanchet was an example of that. He was essentially making agriculture of that, but how, for many years, you had uh, WASP elites, especially in Montreal, but who would tell French-Canadian workers, essentially, speak white, uh, which, which means speak English to me, speak the proper way and so that's the, I guess, the French Canadian trauma uh, that plays into how that comment, which might be coming from a very, very different place, is received and why it's creating so much emotional you know reaction both from the political class and the way that it can you know re- uh, you know resonate with people or not and so people are having uh you know people are being offended uh and there is obviously issues in terms of how official language uh, act and how that that plays out in parliament or not and how uh, it's much easier to be uh, English-speaking only, uh, MP than a French-speaking uh, only, MP uh, in, in Parliament, and that the way that bilingualism seems to work in this country often seems to rely on francophones to be doing the bulk of the job. And so all those frustrations are what is behind the emotional reaction that you're seeing today. You cannot understand what's going on in the, the house and why people are being so, um, once again, strongly worded about this if you don't understand the historical right. context this is coming from.
0: Fred, Fred, as I was watching this unfold today, It seemed to me there was a more base tactical thing at play uh, at the committee, in that Rachel Thomas wanted Pascal Saint-Ange to speak to her in English so she could get clips to put on social media, and Pascal Saint-Ange was not going to speak to her in English to deny her the clips to go on social media.
6: Right. Uh, You know, uh, Rachel Thomas is typically a very strong communicator in pushing messages and getting them out there, and this is how she does a lot of this through committees. So she was attempting to do that, uh, and the minister was, uh, of course, not allowing her to do that, which is her right. To do, and uh, you know, when Miss when Ms. Thomas, Ms. Thomas made those comments, uh, you know, I don't. She wasn't trying to be offensive, but she obviously offended a lot of people. And it is going to hurt. It's gonna, I think there's going to be a political price to pay for that. Um, how? With whom? Well, with Quebecers and Francophones across the country, not just in Quebec. It's uh, When you, you know, as, uh, as Emily said, this is something that's very sensitive to people and for good reason. Uh, a lot of people have to fight for their, uh, their rights and their languages. They're a minority in this country. Uh, and this is something that, um, that people will see this and uh, they're going to get riled up by it.
0: Priya, uh, what's your sense of how this all unfolded here today?
5: Yeah, I mean, I would say off the top that it's not often that politicians apologize and recognize their mistakes. Um, And certainly, you know, last week with Mr. Polyev, we saw that they don't see conservatives generally don't seem to be too big on apologizing right now. So I think it's a good thing that Rachel Thomas apologized full stop. Okay, But I think we also need to recognize that francophones in this country have to deal with this sort of thing all the time, and it's incredibly unfair. In any time you have a group of like bilingual Anglophones or bilingual Francophones, um, the bilingual Anglophones will all speak English, and then the bilingual Francophone has to often also then adjust to speaking English, and it never really goes the other way. Um, Minister Saint-Ange is, of course, capable of speaking English, um, Mm. and we know this, but it's also completely understandable why she, or anyone for that matter, would want to answer questions in a formal setting, particularly in a politically partisan, charged, somewhat adversarial setting, um, you'd want to answer the questions that, you know, in the language that you're most comfortable in. Like, for myself, I speak French, um, and if I had to answer questions in any formal setting and not just in conversations with people that I know, I would definitely prefer to speak in English. And I grew up in Granby and went to University of Montreal for law school. So, like, it's, it's, it's not a matter of, like, whether or not you can actually speak the language. It's just that, you know, and to, to Fred's point, you Rachel was also probably angling for for eclipse um and there is something to be said about uh tactically sort of denying that. or sorry dave you had said that yeah um but i I think all in all i I, you know it's good that she apologized it's it's disappointing that it had to have happened to begin with um and i'm curious to see how this plays out uh in the next couple of days
4: andrew watch your read yeah i think obviously what's been said is is fair comment it was a uh, a curious comment, she should have recognized that that's not something you say in a parliamentary committee. Uh, and certainly there's no need for a uh, uh, predominantly Francophone uh, minister to have to respond in English. I think that you know we, uh, Emily and I could certainly compare notes on you know, the cultures we grew up in. There's certainly a, a sense in Western Canada that bilingualism has shut the West out. Uh, of the corridors of power, that there are kind of you know a unilingual Francophone population, a unilingual Anglophone population, ruled by a bilingual elite in the country. But those are things that you say on Coffee Road. They're not things you say in the halls of Parliament. And I think that that's the mistake that the Conservatives ha- have made, and it will, uh, I have absolutely no doubt, affect them when they are trying to build their uh, their support in Quebec. Mm.
0: Uh, Atlantic Canada says hello on that conversation, uh, by the (laughs) way. But, you know, Emily, to go back to to Fred's point where he thinks there's going to be a cost here, uh, potentially in Quebec with Quebecers, Uh, they moved to shut this down pretty quick, right? Because initially a committee, there was not an apology. it, It turned into the usual sort of committee fighting. And it was a little bit like the process with the Ken Hardy tweet from earlier in the week where he tweeted it, stood by it spoke to Karina Gould, and then swallowed his tweet whole. It was Rachel Thomas sort of saying it, defending it at committee, and then a while later a written apology uh, coming out. So there's definitely a sensitivity to this, it seems, uh, in in the party structure. Will the cost be real, or is it just uh, have they moved quickly enough to shut it down?
3: Uh, it depends if this is just a mistake by one MP or if it makes people want to pay attention and ask questions to Piafoyev yeah, in terms of what are their, lang- their actual you know, views and policies on official bilingualism in Canada, there's a view of Francophone minorities, not Quebecers, Francophone minorities across the country, uh, that uh, when the Conservatives are in power, there's a lot of cuts to Francophone institutions in other provinces, including your Atlantic Canada, David, especially New Brunswick. <laughs> it's been hard <laughs> under Conservative governments. And so there, there there's going to be questions I think asked maybe to Poilievre as a follow-up on this. Okay, well, where do you actually stand on the French language in general um, and their policy? And if that's the case, then The story's not over.
0: Right. So, Fred, uh, the apology came out, but what I found interesting about the apology, it was sent to the clerk or the committee chair, wasn't sent to the minister, was done in writing, wasn't, you could have written on a point of order, you could have called the minister, you could have emailed the minister. What do you make of it?
6: Well, oh, I mean, it was a committee uh, incident that happened. It's where it took place. It actually makes sense to send it to the committee chair, who they can then distribute it to all the, the members there. Because you've got to recall, um, when, she, when Ms. Thomas made these remarks, all of the other parties raised points of order, and there was heated debate. Sure was. Uh, and then she made the remarks again, so she actually did it twice. Um, and there's more points of order. So uh, this is where this happened. So it makes sense to me that it went to the chair uh, and not directly to the minister there.
0: You you know, Sapria. beyond this one incident, right, this is something we're seeing a lot of committees, um, in in that it it turns into uh, clip-hunting exercises by a lot of the parties, right, by the liberals and the conservatives in a lot of ways, (laughs) right? If it's a liberal minister there, it's softball questions, decide to get something like it's put out, and and then it becomes the aggressive tack trying to provoke sort of a response uh, from the opposition, and the purpose of them they're not really being met. It seems like everything right now, um, to some degree, has become a, a purely partisan exercise, and policy is completely falling by the wayside.
5: Yeah, I hate it. I hate it. Like, there's no other way to say it. I, I, I mean, at these clips, you, you know, uh, it, they try and garner these clips so that they can appeal to their most rabid partisan fanatics online. Um, maybe they can get some fundraising out of it, sort of, but I think generally when you're, um, a lot of the most important work is supposed to happen at committee and does happen at committee and it's a shame that, um, parties of virtually every stripe end up turning, um, you know, these committees into nothing but, uh, Clip generation um, for their own purposes. I I think Canadians would be better served um, if politicians actually were focused on getting to better policy solutions for the country um, instead of just trying to dunk on one another um, by these little snippets of, of video that they end up putting up.
0: Andrew, do you think this is just what we have to live with until the next election, and, and uh, which I think is going to go probably the full two years because uh, it's a polyev majority if it happens anytime soon, and that does not suit Mr. Blanchet, Mr. Singh, or Mr. Trudeau in any shape or form. Do you think it's just going to be two years of this sort of partisanship? Why just two years? It'll be twenty years of it. <laughs> I mean, you know, just the
4: parties switch switch positions, and you know there's a different different set of targets. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the piece that you know for all that, that's been said about it, that I think is is interesting, and one of the, the problems is. You know, it goes back to what we've talked about in past weeks about the Conservatives really are auditioning now to be the national government, to to assume those uh, positions of power, and they're needing to put forward people that look like they could form a front bench. These types of mistakes are kind of silly. That cheap partisanship that Sapria talks about it makes it, uh, you know, just look like they're not quite ready. And I think that that's something that, uh, as the Conservatives come out of this session, Think about as they go into the next one, uh, whether that tone and tenor needs to change to suit what what the positions are that they're actually seeking.
0: Fred, Fred do you think they see this as, as a problem right now? The conservatives, like, or you know, because uh, the polls aren't showing any damage, you know, and public opinion polls two years before an election are public opinion polls two years before an election, mm-hmm. but they do tell you something and. Um, You know, it it, it doesn't seem to show that, at least in the short term, since a couple of incidents have happened, that's had any real effect on Mr. his numbers.
6: Right, not yet anyway. As things go, I mean, these incidents are happening now. Um, It takes time for those to set in, and and they have to accumulate. Um, When it comes to political campaigns, I always say uh, whatever campaign team uh, has the least amount of mistakes usually wins. Uh, So that's when these things can add up, though. So we have to see how this this unfolds and uh, if they're able to clamp down on this stuff.
0: Emily, you seen any stir from today uh, in Quebec? Uh, I, I've not seen anything from Premier Legault or the PQ leader or anything like that. I, I mean, is, is this having any resonance or is what happened you know, with Ms. Thomas and, and Pascal Saint-Ange here today uh, an Ottawa bubble thing?
3: Uh, it could be it could stay Ottawa bubble thing because there is so many other things uh going on in quebec there is a ongoing strike of basically everybody right. in the public sector uh that's the top news here and so i think if it wasn't for that there'd be more energy uh politically speaking to invest uh, into what's happening in ottawa but with that uh and uh some bill that basically some stuff on the housing crisis as well i think people had their heads full today <laughs> <laughs> in many ways.
0: No, uh, I, I mean, certainly the labor disruption in Quebec is, is an absolutely dominant yeah. thing. Uh, Supreme, one other point just to touch on uh, before we say goodbye. Like the, this partisanship, the sort of the the, the the tough toxicity kind of culture here I- in this town. Uh, we were having a discussion about this earlier in the week. Um, maybe COVID has made it worse, but there was a time in Ottawa uh, where journalists hung out with politicians after work and saw them in restaurants and saw them in bars, and they had a conversation, and MPs did this across party lines. And that has largely gone away uh, in this town, and a hardened posture has sort of taken root uh, on both sides. Um, What what do you make of that sort of trend in, in politics, and what it's done to the conversation, the debate, and the ability to just see people as human beings across the aisle?
5: So I think it's made all of those things worse. <laughs> um, and, you know, I wouldn't liken it to COVID, actually, um, although that that is possibly a plausible explanation. But I think a more um accurate uh, assessment would be the way social media works and if you look at some of these you know larger social media platforms whether we're talking about uh Twitter or Facebook or Instagram i mean those algorithms are designed to engage you and mm. guess what engages you um rage um and so the political parties have clearly figured this out um and they're just constantly serving up rage um, uh, because it gets their partisan folks engaged, it gets them to open up their pocketbooks and donate money um, while at the same time corroding uh, our democracy and the and like you said, I think what it fundamentally comes down to is being able to see the other side, if you will, or, or your colleagues um, as actual people, and this has real impacts in terms of like effective polarization. Um, in in term, it, And what that means is it's not just like, effective polarization means that you, you're, you're looking at somebody and you're othering them right away and you don't like them because they are, you know, of party X and you're of party Y. Um, we're seeing the, that, you know, become hardened and, and that's a really bad thing. And I don't think any reasonable person um, wants our country to go in that direction, but I, I don't know what we do um, mm. otherwise. Yep.
0: All right, Ken. Uh, interesting conversation, Preeta. And Emily, thank you for explaining the various narratives of Quebec uh, to this Anglophone boy uh, from Newfoundland and Labrador. Thank you That's very much. <laughs> we appreciate it. Thank you uh, very much to the power panel. So Preeta Betty, Fred Delory, Andrew Thompson, and Emily Nicola. I'm Fred, I'll see you tomorrow for the Political Pulse panel. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening.